Welcome to Forward Looking Leadership, a podcast for visionary executives building future-ready organizations. I'm your host, Dan Freeling. I'm the founder of Contempus Leadership, a coaching practice that helps organizations develop their leadership pipeline through virtually unlimited coaching for their top rising talent. I'm honored to be joined today by Steve Bowie. Steve is the CEO and owner of Wisconsin's premier mental health and mental wellness benefit company. He is also a professional speaker specializing in leadership and mental health topics, as well as a sought after executive coach. Steve is a wealth of business knowledge, having worked for over 20 years at two international market leading companies, overseeing global organizational and leadership development and human resources functions at an executive level. Steve and I did our coaching training together, and I've come to consider him a trusted friend and thought partner on all things leadership, management, and coaching. Thanks for joining me on Forward Looking Leadership, Steve. Uh, thanks for having me, Dan. Thanks so much for taking the time. First question for you, Steve, what are some ways that you think about business that differ from how other CEOs might think about it? Ooh, we're, we're jumping right into the deep end, aren't Let's we? Let's go for it. <laughs> Uh, great question. Um, I don't, I don't know if this is different, but I, I got a, a couple of guiding principles that I use. Uh, so as you mentioned, I worked for two big international companies, but now, uh, I bought a company nine years ago and then I've started four more. And I would say two of the biggest things that I'm doing that I think are not common with CEOs the first one is I have no aspirations in becoming a huge company, right? There's, there's kind of this hustle culture right now. It's like, you know, get started, grow big, use your free time, put it back in the business, disappear for six months and come back changed. I just want to have a good company and I want to do right by our clients. We do mental health counseling primarily in our companies. I want to do right by them. I want to do right by the customers that we've contracted with. I want to do right by my employees. I want to, I want to serve the communities that we're in. And I don't think being big is necessarily the right way to do that. Um, and so, you know, all my, if you take all the revenue for my companies, we're less than 5 million. Uh, Am I okay being 10 million in revenue? Sure, but I don't want to get there tomorrow. Um, the, the, I think the term they're using now for the small giants, right? Companies that are choosing to remain smaller and really focusing on culture and, and delivering a superior service. And that's what I'm focused on. Uh, the growth, surprisingly, is taking care of itself. Uh, I don't have to worry about growth um, because, listen, we're like everywhere else, you know, Salaries have to go up, should go up. Um, things cost more than they did a year ago. So we need growth. I just don't want growth for growth's sake. So that's the first thing. Um, I would say the second thing that's probably different from a lot of CEOs is I have the 51% happy rule, which is I tell my employees on average, not daily, but over you know a week, a month, whatever that time frame is, I want them to be able to say they're 51% happy with the work that they're doing. Um, you might call that passionate. You might call that fulfillment. But I think everyone deserves to be happy in their job. And in an eight-hour day, if you're not happy four hours and 10 minutes of that, I think there's something wrong with that. Um, you know, we spend more time working than we do everything else. So I tell my employees, I make sure my leadership is asking this question of saying, you know, are you averaging above 
Um, because every job, the reason why it's 51, every job has a component or components that you're not going to get fulfilled from, that you're not going to necessarily enjoy. You know, I'm a CEO of my own companies and there's things I don't want to do. But collectively, if we can get above the 51%, that means someone's going home, I think, having had a good day. What happens when it dips below 51%? I want them to tell us that. You know, I want them to say, listen, you know, today or this past week has been really rough because then we can say, OK, is there something we can do? Uh, is there tweaks that we can do for your job? Is it was it just an off week or do we have, um, you know, is there a history of this? We're a small company or small companies, I should say. There's only so much that we can do because of our size. But there, it'd be surprising sometimes when you're creative, what you can do to make someone's job more fulfilling for them. If we can't do it, then we actively say, okay, well, then maybe we should consider you finding you something else. And that's not a bad thing. And I think that's really where this is different from other companies, is that if, if someone isn't that 51% happy or fulfilled or passionate, then let's go find you the job that can and the benefit of doing that is, first of all, your employees are a lot more transparent with you. You get a much better you know, vibe in terms of what the culture is and how people are feeling and what they're doing within their jobs. Uh, second thing is that if they say, yeah, maybe this isn't the right place, you have some, you have some knowledge then, you have some clue. Um, you're not surprised when all of a sudden an employee hands in the resignation someday. You can you can kind of help manage that process. And then third, ultimately, you're helping a real human being find something that they will find happiness. And I find that that when we do help, and we've done that a couple of times, that's paid back amazing dividends in terms of how that employee talks about us, how our remaining employees look at us. You know, we remove that fear of an employee being honest with us about their job. So I'd say those two things are probably a, a little different than what some other CEOs might be doing. Yeah, it sounds that way. And it's it's pretty amazing that that's actually um, that much different than how a lot of people think about business. So the, the small giants and the 51% happiness, those are really practical, implementable uh, ideas to keep in mind for people. Thanks to you. Well, I, I will tell you with both of those, you got to have to discount your ego a little bit. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, we live in a society that supposedly bigger is better. And you have to be able to say, no, I'm, I'm OK being smaller. And you also have to be in that 51 percent OK with an employee saying you're not the end all beat all place to work. Um, but in both cases, I think if you're really honest, bigger doesn't mean better. We, we've seen, you know, supposedly great big companies fail and fail hard. And we've seen companies' culture be torn apart because a couple employees all of a sudden one day said, I, I don't like it here anymore. Yeah, that focus on the quality is really coming through and subsuming the ego to be able to do that is is really incredible. Steve, um, for the mental wellness company in particular, how do you see your field changing over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I think it's like every other company right now. We're looking at AI and chat GBT and these, you know, these technology advances. I mean, part of me says, listen, this is the new thing, right? So it's shiny and new and everyone's putting all this time and energy and all this what ifs about it. And reality may not end up being what we think it's going to be. 
But at the same time, when you work in a field that is very human driven, you know, mental health is all about, you know, sitting in a room, making a connection, you know, diving deep. It's very similar to the executive coaching that you and I do. Um, you know, you don't know where that session's going to be. So how do we look at technology not as a threat, but as a tool, uh, as an aid? So, you know, if I were to look out five years from now, I, my guess is right now and kind of the way we're leaning towards that those technology is going to allow us to amass a lot of information before we get in the room with somebody. Right. Uh, there's a thing called the intake and the intake is normally the first session. You know, what do you want to talk about? Why are you here? You know, where do you want to get to? What's your goal from this? I think the technologies allow us to get that information um, in a better way that allows people to really elaborate without having to look at a clock and be able to take that information so that when a counseling session occurs, we're able to get to the heart of the issue much faster. I also see it on the back end of then support tools and and behaviors and things that they do after the session now being supported, not necessarily directly by the counselor, but tools that the counselor has at their disposal. So it creates a much richer ecosystem because right now it's show up, go through a 50 minute session and leave. And there might be a little thing on before you come in, a little thing after. But I think what's going to happen is we're going to we're going to see the world open up and a much larger ecosystem occur around mental health. With that said, the other thing is every generation that's coming into the workplace is much more transparent than the last about their mental health. And so we are seeing it, you know, we've seen it over the nine years that I've owned this company of people being talking about their mental health, prioritizing their mental health. Um seeking tools and resources. So I've always said, you know, what what happens the day when we treat our mental health like we treat our physical health, you know, that there's urgent care and there's, you know, your doctors and you go once a year for your annual checkup and you know, all this other stuff. What is the field ready for that type of demand when we get to that ideal point of that where we see no difference between our physical and mental health? That's really fascinating. So the tech not as a replacement for the human element, but as a sort of wraparound and being able to replace some of the um, elements that you would just show up to a session and do. And then even that increase in demand and acceptance for mental health. I've noticed that in my my coaching. So you know that I, I work mostly with millennial leaders too. And I've noticed, I think I'd say the vast majority of my clients are very open about working with a therapist concurrently yeah. with the coaching. And it's just such a shift from how it's been. I think there's another part too, and I've talked to a couple, you know, coaches that are, you know, at the professional uh, PCC level of coaching, you know, the the top tier coaches, and they've been doing it for decades. And they're starting to see that Venn diagram of coaching and counseling starting to overlap more. Um, I think in some cases that's a positive. In some cases, I think it's a little dangerous. Um, if it's not done with kind of a eyes wide open approach, but you know, you're absolutely right. You know, I always have to tell people I own two mental health companies. I'm not a counselor. I'm a coach, but I'm not a counselor. And there is a definitive line between those two things. 
Yeah, so I I have a good sense of that line just for the other listeners. How do you envision that line? Well, it's I someone once said it this way and rightly or wrongly, I like it. Coaching is a go forward process. Where are you at right now? Where do you want to get to? And let's talk about um the the steps or what's involved in getting you there. Counseling tends to say, here's where you are. How did you get here? <laughs> what are those things that have occurred and what are the uh, things that you're carrying that may be holding you back from where you want to be today? And I find that to be a really good kind of litmus test when I do my coaching. And I and when I use coaching, this, this could be any leader is a coach to be able to say, listen, if it's a go forward I can help you there. But if we're going to start digging up onto the past, there's people that are licensed and trained to do so. Because you know, let's face it, there's some stuff sometimes in those closets that we are not equipped to deal with as coaches. That's the exact breakdown um, I've heard in the past and really um, apply as well. And I, I do think when you can have both a coach and a um, therapist or um, some other mental health professional working with someone at the same time, it can really be great because they can do both that past work and that future looking work. And I've had clients um, work with my counselors. Um, and I, I tell them, listen, there is a brick wall between my coaching practice and me owning mental health companies. Um, if you end up talking, working with one of my counselors, they don't tell me what's happening in your session. Uh, I don't ask. Uh, they don't ask me what's happening in coaching. The The connection point is the client. The client themselves, yeah. Right. They share what they want with each party. Uh, but I make sure that from my standpoint, there is a brick wall between the two of them. Um, and I think that that works really well. Yeah, that seems, that seems spot on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's get really speculative here. I asked about the next five or 10 years of the future of your fields, especially for the mental wellness one, but feel free to take this in whatever direction. But what about 50 years out? What kind of changes do you foresee or even imagine might be possible? Yeah, that is the beauty of that is you can't be wrong. Exactly. Uh, I, I'm not going to be around probably. <laughs> That'd make me 103. Um, who knows? You could do it. You know, I, if we talk about mental health, which really I'm in the, primarily I'm in the business of mental health. And, and really, I think you could put this in any industry, but you got to go back. When you talk about physical health, you can go back to Egyptian times and you can find medical journals, right? They were, they were doing some, you know, some crazy stuff, some for benefit of their patients and some not so beneficial, <laughs> but they were, they were, they had created the medical field. Uh, even before then, you look at mental health, right? People that had severe mental health, not even severe, um, sometimes just, you know, what I would call middle of the road mental illness sometimes were still being locked away in the late 60s and early 70s, right? They were, they were, they were considered unfit to be in society. And so you take the, the time difference between those two right? That we've been working on our physical health for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but our mental health as a field really didn't come to fruition until 
you know, what are we talking, 50 years ago? So you fast forward 50 years on that, I look to, well, what happened with our physical health? And I think what's going to be 50 years from now is that first off, we're going to have a much greater understanding of how the human brain works. Um, and some of the things that, you know, today are causing people pain or struggle, you know, we might, you know, it'd be like when they invented penicillin, <laughs> you know, people, one day people were dying from infection and the next day they're like, Hey, we got something right. And it, and it eradicates polio, right. Vaccine. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, drugs is the answer to mental health, but we haven't quite had those leaps in mental health yet where we are able to eradicate a, a issue, a problem. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking a little bit more mental illness than everyday mental health, but where they're able to make a huge leap where literally overnight they can remove a huge barrier to someone, you know, living their best life. Um, so I think we're going to start seeing some huge advances in the mental health field. I think we're going to see it become an everyday, just like, you know, I tweaked my shoulder in the gym last week. I'm going to physical therapy on Thursday. I freely share that. As soon as it happened, I was like, oh, you know, I gotta, I gotta, by the second night of sleeping on, I'm like, I gotta go do something about it. You know, told people I work with, told my wife, made the appointment. There was no question of that's not the right thing to do. We don't do that around mental health, right? We we have the stigma and the sometimes the shame that comes along with it, and the well, I, this shouldn't be bothering me. Fifty years from now, I hope that we don't even think about um, seeking out care. That there's there's you know, just an an acceptance of that being who we are. Um, and then finally, that the resources available to us are just there. I don't have to seek. I don't have to wait. I don't have to pay for them. They are there because we consider it a basic human need. Wow. That's exciting in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I hope. I got fingers crossed as I say these things. Right. Exactly. Always the danger of the, the future and technology taking it right. in the wrong direction too. So right. that's, a, that's a great optimistic outlook so with with these kind of shifts and even that speculative 50-year shift in mind what have you been doing to prepare your organization for change um another great question dan a couple of things so i I was in hr most of my corporate career uh, 25 years and while i carried the title of hr i was really development employee development, leadership development, organizational development. I handled succession planning and high potentials. And it was really how do we make sure the organization and its people are prepared for what comes next. And I love that I always had development in my title because that's how we would future proof the company is if you develop your people, you invest in your people, right? They're going to be they're going to be ready, or as ready as they can be for the twists and turns and changes that are going to come. And I believe that same thing in the companies I have today. We, you know, take um, the mental health companies. If one of my counselors 
took advantage of every internal development opportunity that we have. That's over a hundred hours of development that we do each year. Um, that's group collaboration, small group collaboration. It's the seminar, public seminar that we put on every fall. It's the um, education. Uh, first off, the first this, just paying for education and continuing ed, as well as reimbursement for those things that sometimes are a little outside of what um, would traditionally be paid for. Mm-hmm. But we invest a lot in that cover that then moves over to my administrative staff. And I feel that when you invest in your employees, when they continually grow and development, you know, you nowhere does it said I have to be the guy that's preparing this company. Right? I think if you prepare every employee, now your company is ready. Right? If you invest in saying, listen, what's new, what's what's happening, what's on that horizon, uh, and invest in everyone in your company, that's how you can start to future proof the organization and and make sure that it's not only surviving, but thriving. With that, kind of a sidecar to that thought is, I, at the same time, I don't want to be first in things. Um, let's take virtual counseling, right? The idea of, you know, Zoom or Teams, you know, the idea of not actually physically sitting, sitting across from a counselor, but doing it via your computer or, you know, on your phone. Um, we got a lot of push to do that. Uh, if you go back to 2017, 2018, when the technology was starting to be there uh, to be able to support that. And I got, I got pushed by a couple of companies. One was like our second or third largest customer that we contracted with for mental health benefits. And basically, they ultimately left us because we did not have that technology. But we did that on purpose because we didn't feel the technology was ready to handle counseling. First, you have HIPAA. Um, The regulations and rules and just the ethics that come around mental health is very different from physical health. It's a much higher level uh, of uh, confidentiality has to be in place. Part of that is because of the nature of the field. The other part is just for that trust that a client puts in you. They, they have to feel that it is 100% confidential because of the stigma that comes along around, around mental health. Technology wasn't there yet. It wasn't being encrypted. It wasn't, you know, think of Zoom early on in COVID, how many times meetings were getting hacked, you know, where all of a sudden people right, were you showing up. Your, your session you know, they, getting Zoom bombed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were just getting, you know, someone would type in a random meeting number and get lucky. And all of a sudden they were sitting, imagine if that was your, that was your counseling session, right? There was, there was no guardrails around that. Uh, we're based in Wisconsin and unfortunately Wisconsin and laws around virtual counseling still remain very gray. Um, and in fact, if you were to follow the letter of the laws as written, it's not allowed. Uh, we're still working under a, um, um, can't think of the word right now, but basically an allowance that was put in place during COVID. Um, out of necessity, but the basic rules and regulations still haven't been changed to allow virtual counseling. So even though we could have done it, even though the technology technically was there and there was a lot of counseling agencies that were doing it, we said, that's, that's not the, we're not there yet. Um, and we waited and unfortunately, you know, COVID pushed us there, but it also meant that the technology was ready to go. 
And so I took that and there has been a couple other points in my career where I realized, you know what, you don't need to be first. You just need to really understand what's happening and then be ready to go when everything lines up the right way. And if, whether that makes you second, third or 52nd, that's okay. Uh, as long as you're, you're ready when it happens and you know why you're not jumping in quite yet. Yeah, that intentionality there. And um, I talk about this a lot with being in people-facing businesses and social impact organizations and all of that. It's very tough to be in that Silicon Valley mindset and full of moving fast and breaking things because there's actual people on the other side. Yeah. Of it, and you have to be really careful about when and how you adopt this new technology and move in those directions. Right. On the learning and development too, I think that's that's really fascinating. And you know, I've long I came from a learning and development background, and I've long thought of it as something that that should be a separate skill set from that broad human resources umbrella too, because it's just so different than the talent develop the talent um, acquisition. It's so different than benefits. It's so different from every other element of it. And that that seems like it's something that is just so distinct from that, that it might even need to be its own field or its own area. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In looking at your rising talent in the company, so those high potentials, what are some unusual qualities that you look for? So there's like, you know, the the typical ones of people who work hard and, you know, have have these kind of degrees and, you know, have have shown themselves to be proven leaders and that kind of thing. But what are some, what are some of the unusual things you look for? Yeah. Well, first off, you know, I don't believe in this generational BS, right? That if you're born between this year and this year, you're all going to share these common qualities. Everyone is exactly um, the same from it. Yeah. I think that's a excuse to use a big paintbrush to paint a lot of different people in the same color. And I just, I don't like it. Uh, at towards the end of my corporate year, corporate career, and that was 10, 15 years ago, I used to say, listen, I have terminated. And from an HR perspective, I terminated just as many people over the age of 40 as I did under the age of 40, right? (laughs) One, there wasn't like one generation didn't have a lock on working hard or ethics or whatever. It's, you know, so I, I don't believe in that. I like working with younger folks uh, and younger in their careers, right? Um, If you look at my administrative staff across the five companies, a lot of them are a little under the age of 30 or a little over the age of 30. That was not intentional. I didn't sit there and say, I'm going to have a millennial driven organization. I just was naturally drawn, uh, one, to the opportunity to develop because that's the, those are the people that are normally hungry to learn and, and want to develop and you know are, are welcome to those opportunities when they are done in a respectful manner, not in the, well, let me teach you how it's the world works, young person, you know, but done in a, hey, okay, let's figure this out. Let's look at you know, how we can, you know, there's a skill set that you're going to have to work on. So let's figure out how to get you that and do it in a very respectful way. What I love about the people that I work with, there is an energy that comes with that. There's an appetite that comes with that. There is, um, I think there's a better approach to problem solving, not 
in terms of process, but just the openness <laughs> to exploring and incorporating new ideas as well as uh, principles that have been around for a while. Uh, so I, I love, and I love your coaching, Dan, because you're, you're right in the heart of the people that I, 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 I really love to work with. Now, I do executive coaching and they tend to be, you know, a little, little um, later in their careers. Uh, I do that because that's where I came from. Um, that's where I'm at. So uh, some of the experiences they have, I've had. So they, there's kind of a shorthand that develops. You go on, when it comes to my own companies, I just love that energy. I love the problem solving. Now, to your question about things that are unusual, um, it's not an every time, hands down, will always happen. But I am fond of saying, give me someone who's been in the active military. Give me an NCAA athlete from college or give me a farm kid and I'll hire them all day, every day. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> and the reason being... I lump those three together because they know how to work hard and they know how to, they know how to schedule to get stuff done. Right. You know, the NCAA athlete, you know, in college, who's getting up at 4am to hit the gym, you know, who's traveling on away games during finals weeks, who's, you know, working on their nutrition. There's just, there's a responsibility. I think in all three of those, Farm kids, NCAA athletes, and and uh, active military. There's a responsibility for them to figure out how they're going to get everything done, um, and working hard. Now, that's not if you were to go through and ask all my employees, "What's your background?" You're not going to find a lot of them <laughs> in here. There's a, there's a lot of other things uh, that leads to someone getting hired here, but I do love when I find someone that tells me a story or gives me a, a snapshot into their life that shows me how they were able to create the opportunity to strive, but then also keep a balance um, to know that work is not the end all beat all, that there are other things in life that are more important than work. So it's the people that can put that puzzle together and know that they're better for having done that. Those are the people that I love to take a long, hard look at. The first time I'm thinking of this in full, but there there seems to be something of um, these sort of like talent development, almost like feeder programs that that are out there that you can take a look at of you know whether that's the military, whether that's the you know college athletics, whether that's growing up on a farm. I think for for me I was, you know, very cool in college obviously. So I was I was in Model UN and even that was this like really intensive um organization that you were part of and we were like running these big conferences and traveling all over the country and competing in debates and that kind of a thing and it's making me think of, you know, how many of these types of things are out there that are doing that work of basically like proving and helping people hone their responsibility, their discipline, their balance of interests and passions and work and all of that out there. That, that's a really interesting one, Steve. I mean, the, it's a very cliche question, but I love asking people, you know, okay, so what do you do for fun? What do you, what do, you do to, you know, to, to balance your life out? And there's the people that really have thought about that and do it intentionally. And then there's the people that you know, are still, they haven't quite figured that out yet. 
Um, but I love that question because that's when you get to see the real person, you know, when they all of a sudden their eyes light up because they're talking about something that really holds a special place in their heart that they do not because they're paid or because it's going to pay off dividends professionally, but they're doing it just for the love of doing it. And when you find that, then conversation gets really interesting. That's so fascinating. So for like the longevity of keeping them engaged in the organization because yeah. they have other things that drive them and then also bringing that energy and that passion yeah. as side benefits to the work itself. Yeah. And listen, they, you know, I don't hire anyone anymore thinking that they're going to work for me for 30 years. Um, you know, a lot of how we structure things, counseling, take counselors. Counselors normally, if they stay three years, then they'll stay five to seven. But they normally max out at seven years. Um, I call it ghosts in the walls that they, the counselors, just because of the intensity and the stories and all of that, that either at the three-year mark or the five to seven-year mark, they need a change of scenery. They need to go. And, and oftentimes, because we deal, we're traditionally known as an employee assistance program or an EAP. That's, that's short-term mental health counseling. Um, a lot of times they want to go get into group therapy or they want to go work at a behavioral health center where they're getting more into mental illness and inpatient care versus, you know, our outpatient. But, you know, I have no, I have no false beliefs that I'm going to hire someone, they're going to stay forever. So it's much more into that. How can we align our wants and our needs over this period of time? so that we both walk away feeling really good if it ends at some point. Yeah, it sounds like that that partnership and yeah. the respect to your earlier point is there and has to come from both sides. And it's not just, you know, your company is going to do everything that everyone who works for them wants all the time. But there's still that, that trade-off there of they have to also show up and perform and um, be great at their roles. But there is that mutual respect and understanding there. I think I shared this with you before, Dan. I mean, listen, I don't, I'm not the greatest place to work. Uh, I'm a pretty decent place if you align to what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, and, and, and hopefully this doesn't come across as bragging or egotistical, but in the height of the Great Recession, um, for two years, we had zero voluntary turnover. Uh, during when everyone seemed to be changing companies and looking elsewhere, we went two years without anyone saying, I don't want to work here anymore. Um, we kept the whole team. Now we had a couple of retirements and some other things happened, but no one, no one tendered a resignation for over two years. Um, and to me that that's, I think speaks to the culture, but also our hiring process of making sure that we're understanding what is that, what, who is this person? What do they want? And are we able to provide that for them? Yeah. And having that upfront as opposed to, you know, either desperately trying to hang on to people or just having people who are misaligned uh, throughout. So that seems like that's, that's really important for you. Yeah. What's a really thought provoking either leadership or management or business idea that you've come across recently, Steve? I'm going to go with one that on its surface is not thought provoking. Um, it's this whole idea of work from home right now. Um, 
because I'm I'm fascinated by it because I think so many companies are getting it wrong right now. Um, so, you know, here, I'm gonna give you a Steve Bowie view of the world. You know, you think about work, right? So it took us what, 120 years, 150 years to develop work as we knew it back. Let's go prior to COVID. You know, it was well over a hundred years of evolution to get to the workplace as we knew it. And that workplace was designed by companies. The first thing it was, it's a workplace. It's a place, right? You went to work. Where are you going? I got to get to work, right? So it was removed from everything else in your life. It was a place that you went to. Second thing was, there was a time set to it. You have to be there by 7.30 and you're going to work until 4.30, right? So now here's the place, but here's the time that you have to be in this place. And then, so what is this place designed for? It's for work. You're going to show up at this time to this place and you're going to do work. Why was it designed that way? Because it made leading people there easier, right? I could be at that place during their hours and everyone that I was responsible for or everyone that was doing, you know, a job for my company or whatever would be there and I could see them. I didn't, I could, you're all in one place. You're all there at one time. Mm -hmm. As long I could just watch, I could go around and watch each of you work. And that made my job as a leader really easy, right? So hundred years to evolve to that point. COVID hits, work from home happens, blows the whole thing up, right? Now it's not a place. Work is actually happening in the home. Those used to be two separate places. Now they're one place. Work was happening outside normal working hours. I use the air quotes, right? People were able to do it as it fit into their calendars. And surprisingly, <laughs> people liked it. They thought, hey, this isn't bad. Not everybody loved it, right? And let's face it, COVID did a real number on our mental health. It, it you know, a rocket fired us into a mental health crisis that we're mm -hmm. still dealing with today. But it opened up the parameters of what work could be. So now, you know, that was going to be, okay, there's the new norm, but now we have it swinging way back the other way where companies like Walt Disney and Zoom and these others saying, nope, you got to show up. You got to be here, you know, and they're putting a lot of terminology on why they think it's important. It's creativity and it's team building and it's blah, blah, blah. What's funny about it is that companies that are so, you know, diligent about data really don't have any the support that idea that you need it for creativity or team building or productivity um, in fact in some cases it's flying in the face of it so what that leads me to believe is why there's such a push for getting people back in the workplace because then it goes back to that old model of leadership that makes it easy they're in a place they're there at a time and i don't have to figure out how to lead differently i can lead like i have always been leading so when we talk about that, you know, idea of thought provoking leadership, you know, my all my employees have the option to work from home, um, you know, with counselors, you know, they if it's an in-person session, you know, it, it has to be in one of our clinics. Um, but if it's virtual, we have it set up where they can do virtual sessions from home. 
And if they wanted to, they could set up where they do virtuals, you know, all virtual appointments on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and they do it from home. What we have found, though, is that with a lot of our counselors, they intermingle those virtual sessions because they like having the place to go to. Um, they like, you know, that this sets in their uh, day a certain way, but they know they have that flexibility there. Uh, administratively, I work from home two days out of the week. I'm in the office three days. I work from home two days a week. I get stuff done, but it's not between the hours of eight and five. I was working last night. I, I didn't, I didn't work on Friday. I didn't do anything related to any of the companies on Fridays. Last night, I logged in around four o'clock. I worked till seven. And my administrative team has that same ability. I have not seen a drop off in productivity. I haven't seen a drop off in our team working as teams. I haven't seen a drop off in our ability to take care of our clients. What I have seen, though, is that I and my leadership team have grown in terms of how do you lead when the person is not sitting right in front of you. That is, yeah, it, it's just such a shift from leadership being a position that is for the leader's benefit of, I've, you know, I've become a leader and I've achieved leadership and now I'm going to reap the rewards of being a leader. And it's toward that, you know, how do we bring people together in this organization and work toward our common objectives here? And I think that's, it's such a difference of like, is this to make the leader's job easier? Is this to have optics of looking productive or is this to actually be productive yeah. and thinking about that. And, you know, I think there's, there's certain companies and organizations that have a physical plant or something where it's like, you need to be there in person. And it makes sense for, you know, for the Disney example, even for maybe park leadership has to be on site. And that makes total sense. You have like an operation that's running there, but for a lot of companies where they're just doing straight up knowledge work or innovative work, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And you're totally right; it's not backed by by the data. And um, yeah, it's just a it's a real shift of what is what is leadership about? What is management about? Is it about me or is it about actually doing a good job? I think the companies that are really going to thrive and and be a true attractor of talent are the ones that are to your point when. When there is the ability to be flexible, they are flexible. It's refreshing to actually, you know, hear a thoughtful approach to this too, because I feel like there's so many ideological camps on it where it's just like, everyone needs to always be remote all the yeah. time or everyone needs to be fully in person or else you're not really working. We need to check on you. And yeah, it, it's it's nuanced and it's it's something that's a, a conversation and a dialogue and where, you know, you're going to lose people if you go in a certain direction and you have to take that all into account as, as a business owner, as a leader of, yeah. you know, what, what am I willing to do in terms of trade-offs here? Right. What's a leadership book or other management resource that you find yourself coming back to the most often? Hmm. Um, I'm a big reader. So I read, 24 to 30 books a year. Um, and they're split uh, between fiction and nonfiction. I like murdery thriller books. Um, <laughs> that gives it's you it's important to not just be, yeah, not just be on the business stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I, I have, you know, some interesting escapism. Um, we have a murdery book club um, 
here in the office where we, we trade books um, around those. Um, and then the other half are, are nonfiction and I read them. A lot of them are business books and the two, you know, so I, I'm a book guy. The two that I always, I, I don't go back, you know, physically, but I think a lot about, um, the first one is called the toilet paper entrepreneur. And it's, uh, written by a gentleman, Mike McCallowitz, I think is how you say it. There's just a lot of vowels and consonants in his last name. He's written a whole bunch of books. He's a Gen Xer, so I get all his movie references um, in his books. <laughs> I know you're a big movie guy too. Yeah, and he's you know he swears and whatever. I just I but his Toilet Paper Entrepreneur was his first book, and I read it shortly after I bought you know my first company and left corporate, and it was really about how do you start a company. And what's the mindset you have to have? And how do you do some really basic things? Like, how do you go get customers? And how do you decide if you should hire an employee or not? And what I loved about it and the, why the book is called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur is he says, listen, if you go into the bathroom, right, and you sit down and you look and there's only two sheets of toilet paper left. He said, in that moment, you become an efficiency expert. <laughs> when it comes to toilet paper, you become the world's greatest problem solver as you look around the bathroom and try to figure out what your options are, <laughs> if it might require more than two sheets of toilet paper, right? So his whole thing about it is, you know, when you sit down and there's a full roll of toilet paper, you're like, hey, you're blowing your nose and you're wiping your shoes and you're doing right. And you're taking... 30 sheets at a time, but, you know, entrepreneurs, you have to keep that, that problem solving efficiency because it, it's so easy to fall and you make some money. And then all of a sudden you're like, I should have an office. I should have a nice desk. I should have employees. Um, I'm not cheap, but I do carry that thought along of saying, well, if I had no money, if I had no assets to leverage, how would I do this? Uh, and then I work from that point. And I think if you're going to own a business, that idea of how do you, what's the most efficient way, what's the quote unquote cheapest way I could do this and then work from that point to decide what you're going to do. Cause it's too, like you get a couple of clients in and you got some cash and all of a sudden you might make some commitments that all of a sudden things get lean you know, aren't going to be helping you anymore. So that's one that I keep going back to philosophically. The other one is, you know, the classic of Simon uh, Sinek's Start With Why. And again, you know, to the, the folks that you're working with and a lot of my, especially my administrative staff, you know, boomers, Gen Xers, again, to use those age generational tags, you know, we were just told to do it. Um, and then that's how we emulated our leadership was just, well, I'm the boss. So you do it. Cause I, if you want a paycheck, you know, you're going to do it. But when you, when you approach something with why, and, and again, it's why I love each, you know, as each wave of college graduates come in, they're asking that question, you know, it's rising from the 10th question to the fifth question to now, oftentimes the first question, why are we doing this? Why is this important? And as a leader, I think the more you start with 
that why, where you consider the why, the more that you get the best out of someone. I do, I used to um, teach a leadership class and now, you know, I do, I do some keynote uh, speeches uh, around leadership, sometimes how it intersects with mental health. But I have an exercise that I love to do. I, I have someone come up from the audience and, you know, in the Midwest, we have Culver's, right? It's, you know, burgers and fries and frozen custard. And gotcha. I, I always, I have a gift card, $5 gift card to Culver's. And I, and I ask for a volunteer. I say, hey, come up here. I'm not going to embarrass you, right? But come up here. And if you just help me with this, I'll give you a, a gift card to Culver's. And I, I have them stand you know, against the wall and I tell them, I give them a post-it note and I say, I just want you to reach up, keep your feet flat on the floor. I want you to reach up as high as you can with your right arm and put that post-it note up as high as you can. No strings, no tricks, whatever. They go ahead and do it. I give them a $5 gift card. And I said, now listen, here's the deal. I can give, I'll give you another one if you do that again. And normally they're like, sure. I said, okay, but I want to tell you something first. Not only am I going to give you a $5 gift card, here's the deal. I need you to put that post-it note two inches higher than the first one. And if you do that, not only are you going to get a $5 gift card, everyone sitting around you is going to get a $5 gift card to Culver's. In fact, I want you to think of those people not as, you know, random people sitting next to you or, you know, coworkers who came to this conference with you. I want you to think of them as your family. And this isn't just a $5 gift card. This is food, man. This is love, right? This is burger, fries, and frozen custard. I mean, there's <laughs> nothing better. Who can ask for more? Yeah. And if you can just put this post-it note two inches higher, everyone's going to feel that love from you. I have never, in the 10 years I've been doing that exercise, I have never had anyone not be able to put that post-it note two inches higher. And the reason I love doing that exercise is because I explain to people that two inches is discretionary effort. We all, we work every day, every time we have a task to do, we figure out what is an acceptable level to do it at. What does good look like that other people would say, yeah, that's good. But we always leave a little in the tank. That's never 100% all out. We save that for when something's really important, when we understand the benefits that it will bring. And that's why I love Simon, Simon Sinek's Start With Why, because the difference, how people get that two inches more is because I explained what will happen and why it's important. And so I use that thought a lot when I'm uh, introducing something, I'm, I'm going to explain something, I'm going to ask someone to do something. I need to explain that why to them, because when they understand that, they're going to give you more than if you just say, do it. Right. And, and even being restrained with how often you do that as a leader, I think is key of figuring out, you know, what, what things are actually important yeah. to move the needle on what we're trying to do. Why are we trying to do that? And yeah. then people will stretch, but when you just use it as super transactional, people get burned out really quick. Absolutely. But it's, you know, to sit there and go, listen, if you do this, here's the downstream upstream implications. Here's what, you know, our, our purpose, all of our, the five companies, my wife and I own, they all share the same purpose. It's we care, we help. 
That's why they exist is because we want to work with people that genuinely care about others and they want to help them. And it's amazing how those four words, when we talk about what does that actually look like? What is the impact that we have? And we share that information later today, you know, leadership team, we have my monthly meeting. That's the third Monday of the month. We go through all the numbers and we go through all the data points that tell us how the impact that we're having. And then I do a skinny version. I record it and I send it out to all employees. Um, and we talk about the surveys and we talk about times to appointment and we talk about, you know, where the bonus pool is at. Tell them, you know, here's our revenue for the month. Here's our expense for the month. I'm explaining so that when I say, hey, listen, you know, we lost this customer and here's an action we have to take. They already they already know that we have to take that action because they already understand the why behind that customer and their impact that they have for us and what we're able to do because of it. It's so much of a connection to a lot of these other leadership concepts yeah. too of ownership and enterprise mindset and everything of um, helping people understand the purpose behind what they're doing for the business. I just love that. Outside of business, I know you mentioned the the uh, the murdery books club. Um, <laughs> where, Maybe let's where, not make that the headline. Exactly you know. right. Yeah, it's going to be the, the podcast title. <laughs> Where do you get your leadership inspiration? Oh, I lead a, I read a lot of books about serial killers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Steve Bowie on murder. <laughs> Where else do you draw inspiration as a leader? Yeah. You know, I'm a big, it took me, it took me till probably four or five years ago to understand how important my self-care was to everything I was doing. Um, and so the things that I do, where am I drawing inspiration from? I, I share it freely. I stopped drinking almost four years ago. I, I live in Wisconsin. I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's the drunkest city in the drunkest state. Uh, <laughs> it is the epicenter. <laughs> right. So that's the stop drinking in this place is, is something, but I didn't like the role it was playing. I didn't like the time it was taking, uh, for my life. I wasn't getting better at it. And that right there made a, a, a huge difference. So I, I got after that. And then, you know, a guy who owned two counseling companies. I didn't see a counselor regular. And now I do. Once a month, I have a counselor. And I tell her that part of her job is just to let me data dump everything in my head so I don't overwhelm people. And I also don't keep it bottled up. And, you know, we've worked through some stuff that, that was hidden in the closet that I wasn't aware of. I, you know, went uh, last year, last fall, I went on a meditation retreat. I'd never meditated, never done yoga. And it was five days on a mountaintop in North Carolina. And I learned meditation. I learned basic yoga and we did uh, silence. We were in silence for two and a half days. Uh, no books, no music, no reading. Uh, we did meditation. We went for walks. That, holy cow, was that a game changer. Um, in terms of my stress level and having a tool to stress. You know, I, two years ago, I started working out with a trainer a couple of times a week. And, and last year, I changed my diet. Um, this Now I'm starting to develop hobbies. I love woodworking. And I took a great class in July up in northern Minnesota. 
uh, automata, which is, you know, little wooden mechanical devices. They're just whimsical little gears and things that you make out of wood. And their only purpose is to bring a smile to your face. Um, and I learned to do that. And, and next month I'm going back up to learn, you know, figure carving. You know, it's a hobby that has absolutely nothing to do with business, absolutely nothing to do with numbers or it's all creativity. All of those things that I just described have paid off incredibly uh, well in terms of being a leader and, you know, being a business person. Um, it's brought me perspective. It's brought me a level of calm. Um, it's brought me energy. It's brought me the ability to unplug. Um, it fills little buckets of, of joy that I didn't realize those buckets existed for me. Um, all of those things, you know, that mind, body, spirit, you know, fill in, fill in your heart, all of that I now bring to work with me uh, as a leader. And man, I, I can feel the difference. Wow. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing all that. It's an inspiration to me and I'm sure to a lot of people listening to of that, that self-care being so important to your role as a leader. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure and I've learned a lot and I think a lot of people will um, have a lot of takeaways from this. Where can listeners learn more about what you're up to and get in touch if they'd like to? Yeah, so I'm going to give two websites. One is BowieMG.com, B-A-U-E-M-G.com. It's short for Bowie Management Group. That is all our companies, um, has our links to the five companies. Uh, also gives a little background on how my wife and I ended up at this point. Uh, the one, if you want to get into specifically the coaching and keynotes, uh, that's Steve Bowie dot com s t e v e b a u e dot com that takes you directly uh, to the to the coaching and keynote website that you can also get through the first website as well. Thanks so much. I'd I'd really encourage people to check Steve out. He's he's really a wealth of knowledge and a great resource on this, and um, just working in a ton of these different spaces. So, really encourage you to check him out. Listeners, thanks for joining us today. If you got something out of the show, if you could please share it with a colleague or leave a quick review on the podcast app you're using, it'll really help spread the word so others can find us. And Steve, I wanted to thank you again for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, Dan, listen, you know, I think the world of you, you're doing great stuff, man. Thank you so much.